Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. much, uh, Andrew, and let me add my words of welcome not only to those here in the auditorium, we're grateful that you came on this rainy day, but those who are watching us on television, uh, this is an important topic, the fuel cell scandal, the fuel cell corporate scandal in Delaware badly needs some sunshine. It takes money from hard-working folks and transfers it to big corporate bloom energy, which makes promises it cannot fulfill and claims about its green energy, which are false. It is politicians in Delaware and in Washington, D.C., the deep state, and the chosen few at Bloom Energy who are benefiting on the backs of the hardworking people of Delaware. It is shameful and scandalous. Today here at the Heritage Foundation, we have a distinguished panel who will cast sunshine on this scandal and speak truth to power. The ruling class, which includes both Republicans and Democrats, seek to enrich themselves and their cronies at the expense of the real and the rest of the citizenry. Subsidies, state and local and federal tax credits, earmarks, high-powered connected lobbyists and board members, the swamp, if you will, at its very worst. The Heritage Foundation opposes subsidies. It supports honesty and transparency at all levels of government and is very pleased to host this program today. Leading the presentation is Dr. David Legates, a professor at the University of Delaware. Dr. Legates is professor of climatology at the Department of Geography at the university and adjunct professor at the university's physical ocean science and engineering program and the Department of Applied Economics. He served as the Delaware State Climatologist for many years. He received his PhD at the University of Delaware. He has been published, well, many, many more than 125 times in, ref in refereed journals, conference proceedings, and monograph series, and has made more than 250 professional presentations. In, in 2015, he was presented with the Courage in Defense of Science Award. So I will welcome Dr. Legates to the podium and ask him to introduce his fellow panelists and guide the discussion. Dr. Legates, welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Thank you very much. Thank you, and thank you to the Heritage Foundation and Ms. Dunlop for inviting us here today um, to talk about this particular very important context. Um, First of all, let me say I'm embarrassed to be listed as a feature speaker because really without my three distinguished colleagues, uh, one of whom is not sitting here but is actually on phone, um, not, there'll be nothing to talk about. I mean, they have done the yeoman's work of figuring out what's been going on and essentially shining, shining the disinfected of sunshine on what normally would be hidden under rocks. So let me introduce them to you. First of all, by phone, we have Mr. Lindsey Levine. He received his B.S. in chemical engineering and an M.B.A. in South Africa and an M.S. in chemical engineering from Iowa State. His book on the hope and hype of hydrogen is translated into Japanese and is used in Japan as a university text for students of energy policy and sustainability. Lindsay has given expert testimony to the U.S. Senate on advanced batteries and fuel cells. 
and Brinogs each week on energy and sustainability at www.greenexplore.com, where he is commonly known as Lindsey Levine, the Green Machine. Mr. John Nichols is a retired financial planner who was awarded the professional designations of Chartered Life Underwriter and Chartered Financial Consultant from the American College in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. He also received a BS in education from the University of Delaware. John became a citizen activist for sensible energy policies because of the rising cost of utility services had become a major concern of all his former clients. His goal was to end all subsidies for energy sources and let them compete in the free market. Mr. Paul Dreesen, who many of you may know, is a senior fellow with the Committee for a Structive Tomorrow and the Congress of Racial Equality. He is a policy advisor who focuses on energy, the environment, economic development, and international affairs. He received his BA in geology and field ecology from Lawrence University and his JD from the University of Denver. His book, Echo Imperialism, Green Power, Black Death, focuses on the forceful imposition of Western environmental views on developing countries. Unfortunately, we'd also hope to have Delaware State Senator David Lawson with us today to discuss how the Bloom Energy Bill was sold to the state legislature, but unfortunately had a family emergency to which he had to attend and cannot join us. So first of all, what I'm going to do is give a brief overview of this entire scandal and then allow my three colleagues to go into more detail. Then we're going to open the floor for questions. Well, about a decade ago, GM and Chrysler closed their plants in Delaware. About 7,000 jobs were lost, along with a yearly revenue of more than $300 million. Fisker Automotive was supposed to start the green wave in Delaware, but they filed for bankruptcy after the state gave them more than $20 million, and the federal government gave them more than half a billion. Nearly all the money was lost. So to attract green companies and create jobs, the Delaware Department of Natural Resources Environmental Control, or DENREC, reached out to Bloom Energy, of Sunnyvale, California. Now, Bloom Energy manufactures fuel cells that run on methane gas. Briefly, briefly the policy process works in the following way. Heated oxygen is supplied to the cathode side of the fuel cell stack, while methane and water are supplied to the anode side. The electrochemical process then creates water, carbon dioxide, and energy. If methane, water, and oxygen are supplied, the energy is continuously produced. Now, the Bloom Energy deal with the state guarantees, first, that the state would spend $16.5 million to create a manufacturing facility on the old Chrysler site. Second, Bloom Energy was given grants to exceed $37 million. The state would also pay Bloom Energy $6,250 per employee each year. The tariff on the energy is then guaranteed for 21 years, and the rent on the facility is only $1 per year. In return, Bloom Energy promised to establish and upgrade the manufacturing facility, employ 900 full-time workers by September 30, 2016, and keep them employed for at least seven years. Now, remember, this deal was sold to the Delaware State Legislature as a jobs bill, but by June 12 of 2018, Bloom Energy had employed less than a third of that number. Bloom Energy has stated they think they eventually will have 900 employees in Delaware, but at this point, they can't say when. The bill also includes a clause that stated that they, that they are entitled to all of their 21-year tariff if the bill is ever repealed. Moreover, the Bloom Energy deal is supported under the Renewable Energy Portfolio Standards Act, or REPSA. But because Bloom Energy is fuel cells utilize a fossil fuel and release more carbon dioxide than a traditional natural gas plant, they clearly are not green energy. Thus, the labels, this labels methane as a renewable energy source, but only in Delaware and only if consumed in a Bloom Energy fuel cell. Now, here's my energy bill for July of this year. If we turn the page, you can see that the Bloom Energy charge is broken out in the bill. This is thanks to John Nichols, who suggested it to the Public Service Commission. But note that the charge is listed under delivery charges and not supply charges. This is because commercial buyers can opt out of supply, but not delivery. If we're listed on the supply side as it should be, then commercial buyers would opt out, and the entire burden of the Bloom Energy deal would fall to residential customers, and my bill would have skyrocketed. As it is, companies creating jobs in Delaware, or those thinking of doing so, are required to pay the cost for the Bloom Energy sweetheart deal. Now, to date, Bloom Delmarva Power ratepayers have paid Bloom Energy approximately $200 million dollars and the total take by Bloom Energy from the state has been nearly $300 million. 
Moreover, the energy produced by Bloom Energy was more than three times as expensive in 2012, and now estimates place it as much as six times more expensive than traditional natural gas sources. So simply put, energy from Bloom Energy's fuel cells are more expensive. But energy from methane-based fuel cells is also not clean. Bloom Energy asserts that nothing on either side of the chemical equation is hazardous material, which technically is true. However, no clean commercial source of methane exists, and thus it contains many hazardous products that must be removed from the methane before it can be added to the fuel cell to avoid contamination of the stack. These compounds must be removed in sulfur canisters. Now, Bloom Energy's permit to Delaware stated they neither use nor produce hazardous waste. While, again, technically correct, it ignores the presence of the hazardous waste in the methane source. Two sites in the state use Bloom Energy fuel cells to produce electricity. One installation is sited in the Delaware Coastal Zone. This is important because the Delaware Coastal Zone Act of 1971 and its later additions specifically regulate heavy industry and manufacturing activities along Delaware's coast. So John Nichols sued Denrec and the Secretary Colin O'Mara for violating the Coastal Zone Act regulations. He's going to talk more about it, but during a lengthy hearing, Bloom Energy representatives testified that no hazardous waste and no hydrogen sulfide was produced or produced in the process. Well, John countered by producing a training proposal to the state of California where Bloom Energy had requested training explicitly for hydrogen sulfide handling. The response from Blue Energy's representative at the hearing was that the request in the training proposal was simply a mistake. They had no need for hydrogen sulfide awareness training. Well, it turns out John didn't win, but in fact the state citizenry actually lost. The verdict was that John did not have standing to sue the state. This now sets a precedent that no one can challenge the state regarding the Coastal Zone Act, and the state has since made plans to locate other projects in the Coastal Zone that violate the act, much to the chagrin of environmental groups. Delaware is also concerned about air quality issues regarding ground-level ozone, particularly in the northern part of the state. Now, as you probably know, sunlight reacts with nitrogen oxides and volatile organic compounds to produce ozone. But since a Bloom Energy fuel cell produces 90 times more volatile organic compounds than a natural gas plant, you would assume the state would not place them in residential neighborhoods. You'd be wrong. The other site within the state which utilizes Bloom Energy fuel cells to make electricity is Brookside a residential neighborhood of Newark. Does this make any sense at all? <laughs> we know that Bloom Energy transports hazardous waste from these, from these two sites. John Nichols has obtained several manifests like these from various sources. Note that the one shipment went to Albuquerque and the other to Ohio in July of 2017. So John set a FOIA to Denrec for the entire body of manifests from 2017 and the first third of 2018. The director of Denrec's Division of Waste and Hazardous Substances wrote back, saying the lack of manifest implies that Bloom Energy has not generated any hazardous waste that required disposal during that period. Is the state ignorant of the fact that Bloom does, not, does produce hazardous waste and is transporting it across state lines, or are the officials simply complicit in a cover-up? With respect to the Resource Conservation Recovery Act, or RICRA, the canisters, when disconnected from the fuel cell, becomes hazardous waste that is subject to RICRA rules. That is why Bloom Energy has now hired Mr. Ryan Thompson, Senator Inhofe's former chief of staff, to lobby on issues related to the regulation of fuel cells under RICRA and issues related to the treatment of fuel cells under the Public Utility Regulatory Policy Act. Well, on June 12th, the game changed. Bloom Energy filed an S-1 form with the Securities and Exchange Commission to become a public company. There they noticed that hazardous waste is, in fact, associated with their fuel cells when they wrote, quote, our energy servers, like other fuel cell technology-based products of which we are aware, produce small amounts of hazardous waste and air pollutants, and we seek to ensure that they are handled in accordance with applicable regulatory standards. But just one week after the interview with MarketWatch, Bloom Energy's post-IPO comments had to be officially disavowed to the SEC. Apparently what they told MarketWatch was quite different from their S-1 filing. Moreover, Bloom Energy notes in their risk factors that we have incurred significant losses in the past and we do not expect to be profitable for the foreseeable future and that our business depends on financial incentives. The loss of these government economic incentives could cause our revenue to decline and harm our financial results. In short, they need sweetheart deals from states like Delaware simply to remain solvent. 
Now, you might ask why the Delaware Attorney General, Matthew Den, has not taken up investigation of the fraudulent claims made to the state, especially when the project was designed to create jobs, which is not created, and given the hazardous waste is not properly documented. It turns out that under the Markell administration, who pushed the Bloom Energy Bill through the legislature, Attorney General Den held a different post. He was a lieutenant governor. Certainly, you cannot expect Attorney General to investigate his own administration. In summary, the issues of that fiasco peel, peel like the layers of a rotten onion. They include that the Bloom Energy contract was sold as a jobs bill, but it has failed to employ even one-third of the workers it promised. The energy produced by Bloom Energy fuel cells are more expensive than other methane-based sources of energy. The energy is not green in that it produces carbon dioxide and even more so than other methane-based sources of energy. And the energy is not clean and it contains hazardous waste which must be disposed. Bloom Energy has misled the state about the characteristics of their fuel cells, and the state has failed to hold them accountable either by complicity or negligence. The bill was hastily run through the legislature and contains odd provisions, such as guaranteeing Blue Energy their entire 21-year tariff should the law actually be repealed. And finally, Bloom Energy needs deals like the one given to them by the state of Delaware simply to remain a viable company. Well, at this point, I want to turn the podium over to Lindsay Levine, who's going to speak a little bit more on the science and, in particular, the politics associated with this event. Lindsay. Thank you. Please turn to my slides. This slide is the breakdown of the subsidies between what Delaware ratepayers pay, what the federal government gave in terms of a Section 1603, which is the old investment tax credit, what the Delaware Department um, for Development gave, and then the rent forgiveness at the university. 200 million came directly from Delmeva ratepayers, and the total is now 300 million as of today, as uh, submitted to the Delaware Public Service. Please, next slide. But my real concern is not just Bloom, it's the whole uh, deep state. And Google was Bloom's first customer. And this uh, series of slides will give the collusion between Google and Bloom Energy. In 1999, Dorr, who uh, was the chairman of Kleiner Perkins and still heavily involved in Kleiner Perkins, invested in Google and sits on the board. This made Dorr a multi-billionaire because Google certainly is a success story. In 2002, Dorr through Kleiner Perkins invested in Bloom and sits on their board. We received a report from the American Society of Mechanical Engineers dated April 2008, a public report funded by the Department of Energy that Bloom had the worst fuel cell on market in 2008. Yet in July 2008, Google became Bloom's first commercial customer. Next slide, please. In August of 2008, just uh, when uh, Lehman Brothers was going bust, Morgan Stanley used the performance of a single bloom box at Google to raise the second tranche of what was the Series E of Bloom. The second tranche was almost 100 million. But Bloom installed four bloom boxes at Google, but only one had to run for 30 days with limited capacity to be deemed a commercial success. This is not the way power plants are actually given through their performance testing. And the performance test at Google simply duped investors. We also know from the Bloom S1 that many of the Bloom boxes failed and were decommissioned, and Bloom actually took a major substantial loss on the decommissioning of those boxes. Next slide, please. So then what else happened was in January 2009, Google and the University of Tennessee in Chattanooga, um, and Representative Womp at that time, Zach Womp, and Senator Bob Corker, who was uh, the mayor of Chattanooga, arranged the deal in Chattanooga. The university and Google gave a fake testimonial to Cypress Semiconductor, glorifying the bloom box, and Cypress became a client. But Cypress is heavily involved through T.J. Rogers, who sat on the board of Bloom until January of this year. For some reason, he left. 
it's not shown why he left in the S-1. My guess is he's being investigated in some way, shape, or form for conflicts of interest because Cyprus fired him. And he was an early investor in Bloom and has many shares in Bloom. In 2009, Advanced Equity, which is out of Chicago, was shut down by the SEC down around 2012 because in 2009, Advanced Equities used this testimonial to raise the Series F money for Bloom. The SEC shut Advanced Equities down and put their two principals out of business, but never went after Bloom, who were actually feeding Advanced Equities all this false information. This is the opposite of equal justice, and I've asked the Office of Inspector General of the SEC to investigate the entire advanced equities um, investigation. Next slide, please. When Google, when um, Bloom decided to come out of stealth and went public in terms of their own technology, they held a big event at eBay, which is another company tied into Kleiner Perkins. And in February 2010, Larry Page of Google attended this coming out party, and he stated that when, it, when the bloom boxes work, they will install them at data centers. We have no further record of Google ever installing more than the four bloom boxes that went in in July 2008. Dor then stated that the launch of Bloom is as big as the IPO of Google, because at this stage, they thought they'd get 20 to $30 billion in the IPO of Bloom, which they promised around 2011. Next slide. This is from the Bloom website and shows when Google became their customer, how big a customer they are, and that's only the 400 kilowatts, which are the four original Bloom boxes. Next slide, please. At that launch, it was attended by all these dignitaries. As you can see, Arnold Schwarzenegger is hugging the CEO of Bloom, K.R. Sridhar. By video conference, Senator Feinstein welcomed Bloom. By video conference, Michael Bloomberg welcomed Bloom. Colin Powell was there to welcome Bloom. And a, Maybe a hundred other super well-connected people in Silicon Valley were there to welcome Bloom. It was a love fest. Next slide, please. The day before they actually launched their stuff at eBay, 60 Minutes that Sunday carried a special where Leslie Stahl hyped Bloom to the nth degree. This was in February 2010. 60 Minutes subsequently realized that this whole green energy was a farce, but has never really come out and apologized for launching Bloom. Next slide, please. Now, the S1 is really interesting in who owns and controls Bloom, besides Kleiner Perkins and NEA and other venture capitalists. Because Bloom was doing so poorly, they went to the state social security fund of Canada called the CPPIB and had notes, uh, loans taken by Bloom from the, the Canadians. Those notes were convertible at a discount at the IPO, so much so that the Canadian pension scheme, the social security of Canada now owns 20% of Bloom. The province of Alberta has been involved in Bloom and has had board representation for years. They own a bunch. The Australian Sovereign Wealth Fund own a bunch. The New Zealanders own a bunch. The Kuwaitis own a bunch. What has happened is that basically over 40% of this company is owned by foreign governments or their sovereign wealth funds or their pensioners. And we are now reinstating tax credits to save this company so that their foreign investors can make a bunch of money. Next slide. We have sort of already touched on the fuel cells not generating clean energy. 
Bloom claimed that they would be producing a lot of this CO2, zero CO2 electricity by using biogas. The biogas has become far too expensive. They had the AC Transit, which is the transit system in Oakland, California, in Alameda County, put in some fuel cells that were to run on biogas, and that became too expensive, so they simply run them now on pipeline gas. Only 9% of the electrons from Bloom cells actually come from biogas. This is in the S1, and that's becoming less and less. The other interesting fact is Bloom actually gets co-formation on their catalysts in their fuel cells and has to de-coke their units 3% to 4% of the time. So we wind up that 3% of the time that fuel cells are actually blowing de-coked material into the air. This has never been disclosed nor permitted, but is actually in the public documents with the Public Service Commission of Delaware. Next slide. Basically, I was interviewed by NBC Bay Area that did a piece called The Bloom Goggle. That piece was nominated for an Emmy and won a national TV award, and they did this in October of 2014. I've extended the data that was in the NBC piece on the amount of emissions per megawatt hour, CO2 emissions, from the start to today. As you can see, only for two or three months in the beginning when the bloom boxes were brand new, did they actually meet the permitted amount of CO2 in the permit. Every month since then, then it's been six years, has exceeded that. Now, the Delaware Department of the EPA, the DENREC, has been told about this over and over, maybe 500 times by me, and has chosen to ignore the violation of the permit. But this is real data as published by the Delaware Public Service Commission. It's public data, and it's not stolen from anywhere. It's on the web. Next slide, please. So if we convert the CO2 emissions into efficiency, it's very interesting because Bloom uses what's called the lower heating value of natural gas to claim their efficiency. This lower heating value is a number where there are fewer BTUs in a cubic foot. Um, it's, a, it's a sort of bogus number because the utility sells the natural gas by the higher heating value. But Bloom skews this data by saying it's the lower heating value. But if we really look at the higher heating value efficiency, Bloom boxes are only 44% efficient as of now and they've not maintained these bloom boxes in Delaware, and therefore the efficiency continues to decline. This just means that Delaware uh, residents who are ratepayers will pay more and more for natural gas because as the, as the efficiency declines, the bloom boxes use natural gas and the ratepayers pay the natural gas bill. Next slide, please. So, I'm not just a, a, a Bloom hater. I wrote a textbook on fuel cells and sustainability back in 2003. It's the entire industry that is basically a hype. Over the past decade, the entire industry probably has $3 billion of subsidies, and Bloom has taken about half of that amount, $1.5 billion. The accumulated losses of these companies just the U.S. companies and Canadian, because uh, Ballard Power is Canadian, has reached $6 billion of cumulative losses, and Bloom has lost $2.4 billion. This is despite all these subsidies. The power from the Bloom box costs uh, consumers a heck of a lot, and Congress recently, under the, in the new tax law, buckled to people like Dore, who sit on the board of Bloom and contribute heavily to all the senators, mostly Democrats, to retroactively reinstate the 30% investment tax credit. My belief is that just to bloom alone, this will be a gift of about $150 million a year 
from taxpayers to a failing company like Blue. Next slide, please. Uh, this is basically the recent data from the U.S. Department of Energy, EIA, on what um, CO2 emissions, heat rates, and dollar costs of natural gas generation are. And you can see Bloom is less efficient and much more expensive than the general generation growing into the grid. Next slide, please. Now, this is a repeat of the data that John Nichols got. What is interesting is under the Freedom of Information Act, I actually got maybe 10,000 pages of documents that I went through in detail. Bloom tried a trick with the EPA by contacting the general counsel of the EPA in Washington, D.C., to overrule staff that they had hazardous waste by claiming that the hazardous waste containers were part of the manufacturing processing unit. Well, they were actually just hazardous waste containers, and the EPA staff stood their ground and said to Bloom, you have hazardous waste, as was shown in David's slide. I believe I've come to the end of my slides. Okay. Thank, uh, you. thank you, Lindsay. Um, our next speaker will be John Nichols, and he's going to talk about uh, some of his experiences in Delaware. First, my thanks to the Heritage Foundation for hosting this event, and my pleasure to be with my friends and esteemed colleagues. I'm really just a canary in the coal mine. Um, but I hope that my experience gives... Um, gives other citizens um, hope that if they get involved, they too can make a difference. If not for Delaware, Bloom wouldn't have ever, would not be in existence today, and uh, if not for Delaware and the reinstatement in the, of the investment tax credit, they, the IPO would not have been possible. So how do we get here? The public policy goals of the Delaware Coastal Zone Act are to control the location, extent, and type of development in the coastal zone areas of Delaware. 25 years after the Coastal Zone Act was passed, the regulations governing it were issued. Their purpose furthers the goals of the Act to protect the natural environment, its bay and coastal areas, and safeguard their use primarily for recreation and tourism. To violate both the spirit and intent of the Coastal Zone Act and the Coastal Zone regulations took failure on a massive scale. Ironically, these failures may serve a valuable public purpose. The administration, the Delaware General Assembly, the Delaware Public Service Commissioners, the Delaware Department of Natural Resources and Environmental Control, the Delaware Coastal Zone Industrial Board, the Delaware Courts, Newcastle County Government, the Delaware Justice Department, and Delmarva Power all bear responsibility for the failures. The administration of former Delaware Governor Jack Markell failed when it promoted Bloom Energy's wildly expensive fuel cells for utility-scale generation in the Delaware Coastal Zone as a jobs bill. The Delaware General Assembly failed when natural gas became renewable energy under the Delaware Renewable Energy Portfolio Standards Act, but only when used in Bloom Energy fuel cells. They also failed when they delegated power to the Delaware Public Service Commissioners to create the Bloom Energy Tariff and promulgate regulations for it. The Public Service Commissioners failed when they acted as an economic development agency, when their proper function is to balance the needs of regulated utilities with the needs of the ratepayers. The Delaware Department of Natural Resources and Environmental Control, known locally as DENREC, failed when the agency willfully neglected to request Bloom Energy's material safety data sheets identifying raw materials, intermediate products, and final product as mandated under the Coastal Zone regulations. DENREC failed when the Bloom Energy Coastal Zone application was publicized for review and comment without the mandated environmental assessment report attached. Instead, the notation will follow appeared on Bloom Energy's coastal zone application. The coastal zone industrial board failed when the members refused to extend the hearing to the scheduled second day to compel attendance to the subpoenaed biologist whose environmental assessment report was missing from the public record. 
The board failed again when they refused to allow Lindsay Levine to testify by telephone about the hazardous waste captured in Bloom Energy's desulfurization canisters. That's their terminology. Lastly, they failed when they denied me the necessary standing to challenge the GenRec-issued coastal zone permit after the testimony of two expert witnesses during the six-hour appeal hearing. The courts failed when they applied as precedent cases heard before the Environmental Appeals Board. This is a different board where common law standing is appropriate, to deny me standing to help end the Bloom Energy Charade. In matters before the Coastal Zone Industrial Board, the Coastal Zone regulations allow any person aggrieved to challenge a DENREC decision to issue a permit to site in the Coastal Zone. Um, as I believe it was Dr. Legates explained, now that precedent is being used to deny every entity the opportunity to challenge a DENREC decision. The county government failed when a permit to site a major utility was issued in S-zoning classification, a violation of the Newcastle County Uniform Development Act. The Delaware Justice Department failed when the office refused under Attorney Generals Bo Biden and Matt Den to investigate numerous credible complaints against Bloom Energy for the illegal transportation of their hazardous solid waste interstate and intrastate. Lastly, Delmarva Power failed when the company agreed to promote Bloom Energy's fuel cell technology and to act as their, quote, agent, end quote, to collect estimated tariff payments two months in advance of payment due dates. Bloom Energy fuel cells remain so expensive, Bloom expects no profits in the near future to admits their technology is wholly dependent on subsidies. The notion all of these failures are coincidences, strains, credulity to the breaking point. These failures demand accountability for Delawareans, Delmarva Power ratepayers, taxpayers, Bloom Energy investors, and everyone who values the beauty of the Delaware Coastal Zone. Thank you very much. Thank you. And now we'll have Paul Dreesen, who has written with uh, numerous authors on the Bloom Energy issue. And I'll turn it over to Paul. Thanks, David. The facts, concerns, and questions my colleagues have presented make Bloom Energy look like the Theranos of fuel cells. By populating its board with prominent public figures, allying with major environmental groups, and securing the help of key Delaware government officials, Bloom has been able to milk taxpayers and ratepayers for massive subsidies, gain preferential treatment on multiple fronts, and avoid rules that are rigorously applied to other industries. The Delaware legislature has let Bloom operate under a unique definition of renewable energy that lets it qualify for special treatment and subsidies by claiming that its equipment could run on biofuels like methane from cows or landfills, even if they never have done so, even if they have always run solely on natural gas from drilling and fracking, and even if they generate hazardous wastes in the process. State government officials have let Bloom build a major hazmat generating fuel cell facility in a coastal zone area. They ask no questions, require no permits or records for the hazardous materials which are being stored on site or transported for disposal someplace else, perhaps across state lines. Mm -hmm. Fuel cells require rare earth and other exotic metals that are mined and processed overseas under minimal or no environmental safety, health, or human rights standards. Fuel cells are clearly not clean, green, healthy, or safe. Per megawatt hour, fuel cells generate up to 90 times more volatile organic compounds and far more carbon dioxide than a modern state-of-the-art natural gas plant. Nationwide, natural gas-fueled, natural gas-powered fuel cells generate about 500 megawatts of total electricity. Now, that may sound like a lot of electricity to people, but it's less than the smallest U.S. nuclear power plant generates, and it's about one-tenth of what one large coal or gas-fired conventional power plant generates. Power generated by Bloom costs up to $200 per megawatt hour. That's three times or more the cost of electricity from a typical coal, gas, nuclear, or, power, or hydroelectric power-generating facility. Taxpayers and ratepayers are subsidizing all of this. Small businesses and poor minority and blue-collar households are paying a grossly disproportionate share of all of this. And yet, nationwide over the past decade, state and federal governments have given fuel cell makers some $3 billion in subsidies. Bloom alone, as people have pointed out here already this morning, 
has raked in some $1.5 billion in subsidies. Again, nationwide over the past decade, and despite all those subsidies, publicly traded fuel cell companies have accumulated some $6 billion in losses, and Bloom alone has lost some $2.4 billion. And then when Bloom's 30% federal investment tax credit was eliminated in 2016, U.S. Senators Tom Carper of Delaware, Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut, and Chuck Schumer of New York made sure it was restored and made retroactive. On these issues and many more, Bloom clearly appears to have made questionable statements or outright misrepresentations of material fact to legislators, regulators, investors, and journalists. You might ask, how do they get away with this? Well, actually, the formula for success is pretty simple. Invoke the magical, infinitely malleable terms climate change, renewable energy, sustainability, and environmental protection and you can pretty much deceive, exaggerate, fabricate, and manipulate all you want. Few difficult questions will be raised, little transparency will be required, no accountability will be demanded. And that's why we now have a nearly $2 trillion per year climate change, renewable energy, environmentalist, political industrial complex. It's why major tax-exempt grant-making foundations have given some $3.7 billion to U.S. climate change and other environmental groups between 2008 and 2016. It's why foreign money is also flowing into all these groups and into Bloom Energy. Politicians provide subsidies. Crony industrials provide campaign contributions. Environmentalists and bureaucrats provide scare stories, junk science justifications, and more campaign help. The climate industrial complex is wealthy, powerful, and well-organized. It fights tooth and nail to protect and expand its turf. It does whatever it takes to crush any opposition and anyone who dares to ask awkward questions. The fact is we all care deeply about our environment and about protecting it from actual threats. But we also care about being lied to, getting ripped off, and having virtue-signaling pseudo-green companies turn out to be devious, greedy, and corrupt and crooked. We clearly need less adulation and subsidization and more investigation, prosecution, and incarceration. Unfortunately, few in authority seem to care about any of this. In fact, as has been pointed out, Delaware courts have said no one even has standing to contest any of this. That means it's up to the executive branch, Congress, and the federal courts. Congress and its committees, like the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee, the FBI, EPA, Securities and Exchange Commission, Fish and Wildlife Service, National Marine Fisheries Service, Department of Transportation, and Department of Justice must all investigate the concerns raised here and prosecute any wrongdoers. Republicans, President Trump and his cabinet have promised reform. Here is a perfect high-profile opportunity. Let's hope they seize it. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you for that riveting and eye-opening, uh, shocking, and truly scandalous presentation. Um, I would like to open it up for questions from the audience. Um, the other thing I would like to do is invite anyone on our panel if they would like to bring up any other topic or ask one of your fellow panelists uh, a question. So do we have any questions from the audience? We have a microphone. Please wait until the mic arrives and introduce yourself, please, uh, to our panel and then ask your question. Good afternoon. I'm Craig Irwin from Roth. So Delaware state law says there's a 3% cap on uh, RPS costs of the rate, rate payer. Can you help us understand where, where Bloom is today? I, I saw in the utility bill you posted $4 on 120. That seems like it's only 30 basis points over. Um, my understanding from talking to a lot of people actually is the number could be as high as in the 20s as far as what the actual contribution is to people's bills. What is the actual number? Where Where, where is the number available today? Uh, you're asking me two questions, as I understand it. One has to do with the cap uh, under the Renewable Energy Portfolio Standards Act, commonly known as REPSA. Uh, up until recently, it's been ignored by the public service commissioners. They've approved uh, 
multiple auctions, uh, carbon uh, wreck and gas um, wreck auctions, uh, and the Bloom Energy uh, tariff continues to get approved every month. But recent actions, uh, in part thanks to my friend David Stevenson, who represents the CRI, the Caesar Rodney Institute, it's a state think tank, um, changes are, are, are afoot. Uh, we, I would expect that uh, they'll, they will cap, uh, they will cap the, those costs based upon a new formula that the commission has developed. Uh, when that's going to happen, I don't know. I've asked the commissioners. Um, the second part of your question had to deal with uh, what does it actually cost. I, I've never said that the cost as provided by the consultants' estimates were wrong. Uh, I think it's been misinterpreted by a lot of people. Um, the, the paper, when they say it's $5, let's say, for the average rate payer per month for a Bloom Energy charge, uh, and the paper, the local papers have reported that the charge is only supposed to be a dollar. What the papers don't understand is that there was an offsetting, and I believe you do, Mr. Irwin, up here, that there's an offset, offset to that, that charge. And that is money that would have otherwise been allocated to wind and solar that Bloom now receives because of the tariff. So when Bloom came on the scene, 50% of the money that otherwise would have went to wind and solar went to Bloom Energy. That uh, outraged uh, a lot of environmentalists that I've talked to. But um, let me comment on that, if I may. If I may. Uh, the environmentalists that I contacted, I did sue former governor of the state of Delaware, um, along with my co-plane of fuel cell energy. I was dismissed. Uh, I, it was Commerce Clause case under Article One of the Constitution. Uh, my co-plaintiff was allowed to go forward. And I also sued uh, the Delaware Department of Natural. No, pardon me, the Coastal Zone Industrial Board. Um, and I asked uh, when the, the the question of standing was to be addressed at the courts that other environmental groups join me, and they didn't. Uh, I asked, and I'll name some. Uh, the Delaware chapter of the Nature Conservancy, uh, the Nature Society, and the Delaware chapter of the Sierra Club. Um, the Nature Conservancy said that we'd like to join you, John, and we, we are opposed to this not because of the cost. And again, the costs are in line with those that were projected. projected. They're just misunderstood by the, by the press. We'd like to join your lawsuit, but um, we can't do that because oftentimes if you give up your seat at the table, you end up on the menu. Uh, that was the support that I wasn't able to get that from the environmental groups. So the costs are in line. I, I don't have any dispute with the cost, but that doesn't mean that they're um, that they make any sense. Um, as uh, Dr. Legates or uh, Lindsay indicated, um, the $65 a megawatt hour was the levelized cost estimate you know, when the Bloom fuel cells were deployed. Uh, the, the midpoint cost per megawatt hour on the consultant's report was $215, three times the cost. Stated another way, for the same amount of money, instead of the paltry 30 megawatts that they cited in the coastal zone in violation of numerous regulations and laws, we could have had 300 megawatts. And at the time, um, southern Delaware had significant congestion. Uh, that's been alleviated somewhat by a new 300 megawatt generation plant, which I think is owned by Calpine or NRG, I forget, it's been they're selling it, Calpine, thank you. Um, so some of that congestion has been alleviated, but it, why would you put only a 30 megawatt facility in New Newcastle County when the majority of the congestion was in southern Delaware? I'm sorry, it was a long answer to the question, but I hope that helps you. Can I add a little bit to this? Oh, Lindsay, yes, go ahead, Lindsay. Yeah. Sorry. So Delmarva Power and Light was supposed to have a wind generation project. And that project would have put debt on Delmarva's balance sheet. That would have been the green energy project had it gone ahead, and that was NRG. It was called um, Blue, Blue something. Blue Water Wind. Blue Water Wind. Instead, this guy from Denrad, his name is Colin Omaro, who came from California to Delaware, went and visited Bloom. It's in the public documents. 
He then got Bloom introduced to Delaware because he had moved from Silicon Valley to Delaware for, for the governor. And Bloom then used all their political muscle to end the wind project. Delmar was very happy because now they just became an agent, an agent that didn't have to put debt on their balance sheet. And they could then pass through, and this thing would cost them nothing. They'd get a few little dollars for being agency fees. Their president, one Gary Stockbridge, petitioned the Public Service Commission in Delaware, hoping that Bloom had environmental benefits and was clean energy. Therefore, Delmarva either did due diligence on a technical basis or lied. And now the people in Delaware have dirty energy, no wind, expensive energy, toxic waste, and the bloom dock. That is really the problem, is that Delmarva Power Light is party to this conspiracy. The other thing is that in 2012, October, the United States government in enacted what's called the Green Guides. And the Federal Trade Commission is in charge of enforcing the Green Guides. I contacted the Federal Trade Commission in October 2012 and told them about Bloom, open the case. That case has been closed. It's six years. I haven't heard back from the Federal Trade Commission. Senator Feinstein, my senator, contacted the Federal Trade Commission to find out the status of that investigation. She never got back afterwards when that investigation went into some sort of lost and found at the Federal Trade Commission. I still believe the Federal Trade Commission can shut down Bloom, and they've been contacted on numerous times. They should find Bloom. It's not just the EPA that should find Bloom, even though the EPA wants to find Bloom $1 million. That's not enough money. This is a billion-dollar scandal, multi-billion-dollar scandal. The Federal Trade Commission, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the EPA, and the Department of Justice to do something, they should do it now. Okay, do you have a follow-up question? Yeah. So, uh, about 10 days prior to Bloom Energy's IPO, that there was an order out of the Delaware PSC mandating, um, consistent with the lawsuit that the consumer advocate won, that... Um, RPS costs to the consumer in the state of Delaware may not exceed uh, the 3% that is in law that was previously ignored. Um, that legally should have been in the Bloom S1 filing, um, and their attorneys obviously are incompetent. Um, can you maybe, and notably, the month before this order was handed down, there was a spike in applications for, uh, for renewable energy products renewable energy products projects to participate in Delaware. Um, so people were trying to get in under some uh, deadline. Can you maybe talk about the actions that you expect the commission to take, um, whether there's any credible remediation um, and whether there is potential for a clawback for consumers under Delaware law? The, the clawback, there is no clawback under the Bloom tariff. Uh, However, it, it, the strategic grant agreement, which is um, which which subsidized Bloom Energy, unrelated to the subsidies paid by the Delmarva Power ratepayers, uh, there are clawback provisions in there. They're weak, one and a half million dollars uh, relative to the thirty-six million dollars Bloom's Bloom receives every year is peanuts. Um, I don't think that's incentive enough for them to create the promised nine hundred jobs. Um, as, it, as the tariff, as it relates to the tariff, uh, no, the Delmarva Power ratepayers, uh, there's no relief in sight. However, to that point, yesterday, I filed a petition with the Delaware Public Service Commission to open a new docket uh, to review the Bloom tariff completely. And it's a power that the commissioners reserve for themselves when they, uh, when they originally approved the tariff. So will there be relief? I don't know. Um, October the 9th is the date upon which that docket will be. The date has been scheduled. We will discuss that docket, October the 9th um, in Delaware. We'll see what, uh, whether or not they're going to set a date for uh, a further review. So 
more to come on that point. As far as the uh, David uh, David Stevenson with Caesar Rodney Institute been an intervener and the matter you're discussing, I haven't followed that as closely. Uh, fortunately, he's in attendance. So, David, if you don't mind, maybe you can address the first portion of that question. Uh, yes, let's bring the mic uh, down here. The Caesar Rodney Institute is a state-based think tank with whom uh, Heritage has a good relationship. So please uh, go right ahead. Yes, uh, I, I am an intervener in the uh, cost cap calculation docket. Uh, the 3% was a uh, supposedly a lockbox, according to the senator that introduced the, uh, the bill, the REPSA bill, and uh, it was exceeded in 2012. It looks like the numbers will be in the 14 to 15% range when we do a calculation. It, uh, the Public Service Commission had delegated uh, the responsibility to come up with the calculation uh, to the Energy and Climate Division. So they did their first calculation after delaying for five years. They did a calculation in 2016, at which time the cost cap was around uh, 9%, as I recall. And when they got done with their calculation, they said, well, it's actually zero. Uh, they did a lot of deductions for externalities and, and other things. And they ignored uh, the fuel cell costs, by the way. The public advocate and Cedar Rodney Institute sued the Public Service Commission to take back the responsibility, which they did uh, this uh, past year. There has been a, a regulatory process. They finally came up with a new calculation and when that calculation is made, uh, it will be uh, uh, at the 14 to 15% number. The next step is uh, the, 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 the regulation has been finalized. There has to be a Public Service Commission order, which will also be on the October 9th is, is the proposed date for that. Uh, that order will go to Department of Power to do a calculation. It'll take a couple of months for them to submit the information uh, and then uh, the Energy and Climate Division reviews it first, then the Public Service Commission. We're probably looking at six months before those are freeze. In the meantime, there was a legislative uh, attempt to legislatively give it back to the Energy and Climate Division in the last session. We will see that bill again. We'll be fighting that bill. So we're hoping uh, we may have a freeze. We may not have a freeze is the point. Thank you very much. Again, Caesar Rodney Institute. We have a question here in the back, and um, then we'll move to the other side of the room. Uh, Andrew. Hi, my name is Cynthia Smith. I'm the uh, board of director for Delaware Coalition for Open Government. Um, I, this is, I am just now um, learning this, and I will be taking this um, issue to my organization to, to see if we could uh, help with regards to um, the transparency issue on this one. And thank you so much for, um, you know, I'm hoping that after this meeting, I would be able to get some some of the facts to bring to our um, board members. I'm very concerned. Thank you so thank much. Thank you very much. And transparency in government is a very good idea. So we're glad to make uh, sure that the connection is made here. Okay, we're gonna move to the other side of the room. Uh, I think the microphone is coming in the door there. Let's start with you, and then we, get, we have a lady right here in the third row. Hi, how are you doing? Um, I'm Justin Arlett, um, so I'm the campaign manager for Rob Arlett, the uh, gentleman who's running against Carper in the, uh, the U.S. Senate election. Um, and I just want to thank you guys for you know, for coming out and kind of bring these truths. Um, it's been a big part of our platform, um, you know, is bringing transparency and accountability to government, um, you know, because, uh, you know, jobs have been struggling. You know, uh, the people of Delaware, I struggled, and healthcare was a big part of that, was a big part of the conversation, and the uh, the corruption kind of in that spectrum. Another part of it was the utilities portion, and that's why many businesses are incorporated in Delaware, but they don't operate, you know, in Delaware. Um, so, guys, I just wanted to thank you, know, you gentlemen. Um, I have to be talking about a lot of many different things, about from from equities, abuse of taxpayer dollars, to um, you know, fraudulent reporting from environmental purposes, and as you know, you know Delaware and the cabinet or current representation speak a lot of being all for the environment and pro-environment when the reality is, is that's not the reality. Um, so with all these different things that you guys have kind of mentioned today, I mean, what would you, um, from a priority perspective, would suggest as kind of that one leg that would kind of topple the other leg? 
optometrist, specialist, that makes sense. What's the one big idea you have here for action? Paul, you want a, a comment on that? Sure. I think what we have to do is put a lot of pressure on the federal folks because I think the Del Delaware people have too much of their own stake in all of this, politically, economically, and so forth. So we're going to have to turn to some of the folks I mentioned early on and make the phone calls, make it part of your platform, your campaign talks, to bring these topics up over and over. I think hazardous materials issue is a very big one, but also the affordability of energy issue has become pretty extreme. There's a new report out just the last couple of days uh, about a third of Americans, not American families, being unable to afford their energy costs, and they're having to cut back on food and housing and other things to pay for their energy. My guess, and I have to follow up on this, is that most of those families are in states like Delaware, New York, Connecticut, California that have all these renewable energy mandates and subsidies. So press on these federal organizations and agencies, work with Cesar Rodney and other organizations, Heritage and so on, and keep pounding on these issues. You'll open a lot of eyes. Um, Clint, did you have... Wait, wait, we, we uh, want to move on here. John, yeah. you want to respond to that as well? I wanted to, I did. Um, in our private communications, you asked me what brought me to the table. Not, yeah. not that quite that way. Um, ten years ago, um, the supply, the, the, so, the, pardon me, the delivery charge for my electricity bill represented about 30% of the total electricity bill. Today, 40% of my bill is represented by the delivery. Now, eventually, if this continues, this subsidy continues, if this isn't enacted, if we don't put a cap in, and understand that the Delaware General Assembly uh, proposed this past session an increase uh, in the Renewable Energy Portfolio Standards Act to 65%, and along with that, a 25% surcharge levied against all ratepayers on all the utilities, regardless of whether it was a regulated utility the co-op or um, the Delaware Electric Municipal Corporation, um, a 25% surcharge that would then be redistributed to individuals who the money would go into a fund and be redistributed to individuals who are eligible for low-income heating, energy, and assistance program. Now, it's not that I hate the poor. That's not the problem. I want everyone to be able to afford their electricity, and redistribution of income via your electricity bill is not a good way to help the poor or anyone else. So take a look at your electricity bills, tell your constitu prospective constituents to do that, and maybe they'll become motivated to take action to affect change. Essentially what we have here is a transfer of millions of dollars from the poor and middle class to the upper crust, and that shouldn't be going that way. Exactly. We have a question here, and then we'll come down to the fr front row. Pardon me. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to get political here. Could you, uh, could you introduce oh, yourself? I'm, and I'm Clint Laird, and I'm in the advisory council of Cesar Rodney Institute. Uh, what Paul just said needs to be repeated. The, in the context of the, the electricity bill that David Legate showed in his presentation. In that presentation, you saw an electricity bill that arrives every month from the utility that has broken out in it costs for wind, solar, and bloom energy, qualified fuel cell. The American Legislative Exchange Council just unanimously voted that every state in the country should try to adopt such transparency on their electricity bills so the common man and woman can see what's actually being paid by them every month. And this is an incredible opportunity for transparency. And, and you know, kudos should go to John Nichols and Cesar Rodney Institute for trying to, for achieving that transparency in Delaware. And as a final, just to show you the level of political push that went down on this, I'm going to ask John to confirm you know that the vice president, sitting vice president, made phone calls to lobby ex parte people on that commission. I know you don't want to say that, but I'm forcing you to say it. 
I can't repeat in a public forum information that was given to me privately. I can't confirm or deny what you said is true. <laughs> I'm sorry. And just to be clear, the sitting vice president that you're referring to was not the current sitting vice president, but yes. Uh, okay, listen, we're going to have to wrap up. We're over time. This has just been a very, very fine discussion. Uh, Professor Gates, is there anything you want to say to wrap up today, or do you think we've covered the waterfront? I think we've covered a lot. There's, there's a lot more to go, but uh, I thank you all for coming. Again, I thank Heritage for uh, hosting it, and hopefully we can make things more uh, transparent and bring, bring the light of disinfectant to some of this stuff. Very good. Well, thank you all very much for being here. Thank you for watching on television. And uh, let's go work for transparency in government and elimination of subsidies, more money for the hard-working uh, people of America, and less in corporate subsidies. Thank you very much.